Daniel Boone was a man, yes, a big man, with an eye like an eagle and as tall as a mountain was he. You're listening to the Drew Marshall Show, Canada's most listened to spiritual talkback program. Well, this Hollywood icon has really done it all, folks. Singer, actor, TV host, producer, singer, songwriter, author, motivational speaker, TV pitchman, radio personality, record company head, TV station owner, sports team owner, family man, humanitarian, and he's actually related to Daniel Boone. We had this gentleman on our show. I'm still laughing at the song. We had this gentleman on our show back in 2004, and he's joining us again here in 2009, Mr. Pat Boone. How are you, Pat? Daniel Boone was a man. <laughs> he's a big man. Yep, that's my great, 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 great granddaddy. Wow. <laughs> I'm doing great. Man, I'm I'm so glad to have you again. The first time I interviewed you, I got to admit something. I was nervous. No. I, w- I was new at the game, and I mean, you, you're like, I don't know whether you realize this or not, but you're, you're Pat Boone. <laughs> My wife keeps telling me that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm not nervous anymore. I, I have just come to respect you as an honest, genuine, authentic Jesus guy. Well, that's the only thing about me that's important, uh, and I mean that, that anything else, the career or all those other activities you mentioned uh, are so I'm realizing more and more so uh, transient and temporary as to be almost meaningless. And that's the way most of us spend our lives on stuff that we don't even remember uh, a week from now. And yet the stuff that's most important, eternally important, we just can't make time for. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you would be the first one to credit the family you grew up in. Of course, born in Florida, but grew up the oldest in a Christian home in Nashville, uh, a lot of people are struggling spiritually in Nashville these days, but uh, that's where it all kind of began for you. Your dad was a building contractor, mom a nurse, mm-hmm. and uh, if I understand things right, do, do you have a brother who shares the same birthday? Yes, my brother Nick, one year younger to the day, almost to the hour. Oh. And, uh, and my mother being a nurse, uh, and I was her first child, and, and then she, she and Daddy learned that they were going to have a second pretty close they were estimating it to about the same time the following year so mama thought well that it'd be nice if we could uh, if i could have two kids whose birthdays are the same it'll be easy to remember wouldn't it right so yeah. what she did was and i told tom snyder who had a late night talk show for some years in this country i told him about this i said mama took a half bottle of castor oil the night before like uh, may 31st <laughs> to try to induce the labor and uh, and it did, and so Nick was born almost to the hour one year later on the same day. And huh. Tom said, "Well, you know, Pat, those are two different operations. You know, the castor oil and birth." I said, "Yeah, come to think of it, it doesn't say much for my brother, does it?" Oh, no. <laughs> I'm not touching that one. No, 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 not at but, all. But really, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And so uh, Nick and I, uh, you know, he's now. He will be 74 his next birthday. I forget what mine will be. Right. Well, that's uh, convenient, really, isn't it? I can never keep up with it. No. <laughs> no. It's probably from all those beatings you took in church, huh? That's you... it. Oh, boy, did I. You remember? <laughs> I did. I, I, I used to think that yet take, being drug up, not drugged, but carried out <laughs> of the church and spanked uh, uh, violently and then brought back in still sniffling and... <laughs> 
and drying my eyes and stuff and sat down harshly on the front row was part of the service. Yeah, well, it's a wonder you didn't become an atheist, you know? I, I, it is It is amazing, but I did <laughs> learn, it only took me three or four years of that, to, um, to learn that if I sat still and behaved, that that punishment didn't have to happen. Hmm. And I became uh, a very attentive and polite, uh, uh, well, pre-Christian. I wasn't a Christian until I was 13, but by the time I was six, uh, I, I knew that I could avoid punishment if I would just sit still. Yeah. Pat, looking back on it, we have two children. Our oldest is 20 and our youngest is 16. Mm-hmm. And our oldest has brought up how much harder we were on him than we have been on our second child. And you being the firstborn, do you, do you think it was the same with you? Well, uh, yeah, in a way, although Mom and Daddy were remarkably consistent, I think, they they never, they weren't really harsh, they were loving, but they did not put up with sass or disobedience. Hmm. And so I was like that as a parent and with my kids. And But I did get uh, spankings and, remember, and told to remember that I was the oldest. I was setting example for my brother and two sisters, and... And I understood that responsibility. I really did. I deserved every lick I got, and I deserved more than I did get. And I knew that Mom and Daddy loved me and that they didn't want to uh, punish me, but that I apparently had left them no choice. (laughs) And so I got it, you know. And uh, I think my brother and sisters did too. But, yeah, the oldest will be like the nose cone of of a rocket or a, space shuttle or something, you know, you will take the heat. An icebreaker, you know, an icebreaker up in the Arctic, for sure. Pat, at what point did you stop living off your parents' faith and finally make it your own? Was it around 13, or do you think that maybe came later? No, no, it was was at 13. In fact, I was a year after my brother, you know, it was expected in our church background and and, and culture that uh, by the time you were 12, you would uh, walk down an aisle, confess your faith in Jesus, and and maybe your sins, what they might be at 12 or before, and, uh, and then um, ask him to save your soul. And I, and I was putting that off. My, my brother Nick didn't. I mean, as soon as he turned 12 and I turned 13, he was down that aisle. I didn't, and people were looking at me, what's, what's holding Pat up? But uh, it was because I was reading the Bible myself. I wanted to know what this was about, and I knew it was an important step, so... You know, I wanted to understand it. And when I came across Matthew 10:32, where Jesus said, If any man, any person will confess me before my Father and the angels in heaven, I'll confess him. If he denies me, I'll have to deny him. And I realized that's it. That is the crux. Uh, the most important uh, fact of my whole existence will be, have I confessed Jesus as my Lord and Savior? And if I ask him to save my soul, and, and if I haven't, I will have lost everything. If I have, I will have gained everything. And so at 13, I walked down the aisle and knowing what I was doing, and uh, it made a difference. Right. I mean, I wasn't a rank sinner <laughs> at 13 at all. Sure. But, but it, did, it did shape my thinking about everything from then on. And I had a sense of purpose and belonging, and uh, that went even beyond belonging to my mom and dad and our family it meant belonging to god i've had that sense ever since you met and performed for the queen a couple of times you've had elvis presley open for you you had three rock and roll hits before heartbreak hotel was released by elvis too hard to kiss ain't that a shame crazy little mama yep 
Actually, there were two more. Uh, there was one is very forgettable, but it, because it was on the heels of the others, uh, it, it was it was called G. Whitakers, which. Uh, <laughs> Uh, is, is, is as good as it sounds. Yeah. And then, uh, and then, just about three weeks before Heartbreak Hotel, uh, a two-sided hit was released: uh, "Tutti Fruity" and uh, "I'll Be Home." And both were big, big hits. "I'll Be Home" was number one, and um, and and so had "Ain't That a Shame" been. So, the amazing thing, and I I consider it just God's uh, grace, providence. Um, and, and, and also he knew that Elvis was going <laughs> to create such an explosion that if I was going to continue to exist in the entertainment business, I needed this. So from March of 55 to February of 56, 11 months, I had six uh, million-selling singles, two of them number ones, in 11 months. I mean, that's wow. never happened before. It'll never happen again. It was just uh, so I could endure the uh, onslaught of the of Presley mania. Well, yeah, and it went from Presley mania to the British invasion. And, oh, yeah. and some would say, I guess the musicologists have studied this, looked over the years, and said that was probably the biggest thing that maybe, uh, you know, you took a hit from was when that British invasion started. Oh, yeah, uh, man, it was, at one point, they had six of the top ten <laughs> singles. And uh, on the record charts, and of course that was eclipsing uh, in a major way record sales for all of the rest of us. We were scrambling for uh, for the scraps, and so what I did, and I'm very proud of this. I've made a lot of bad business decisions, but this was a good one. I went to Celltab, which was Beatles spelled backwards. That was their licensing organization. Their manager Brian Epstein at the time, and I got the license to sell Beetle pictures. I had an artist do um, oil, or no, they were watercolor, beautiful water, watercolor portraits of each of the Beatles, and then a group portrait, and, and I got a guy to help me merchandise them. And, and so I wasn't selling records like I had, but I was selling Beetle pictures. <laughs> And, and we did really well with them. <laughs> well done. Well, uh, in 2006, though, you released five new albums. And I'm thinking, hold on a second, seriously, you're Pat Boone. Elvis is gone. The race is over. You know, the tortoise has won. Slow down, buddy. Five albums. <laughs> well, it was it was ill-advised. Uh, I did it because I'd been around and recording and singing and still going 50 years. So I thought, okay... I'll do something unprecedented. And again, I think the Daniel Boone DNA kicked in because <laughs> he liked to go where other people hadn't been. So I knew nobody had ever done this. I didn't realize it was impossible. That was a good reason for not doing it. But <laughs> but I put out five albums, one patriotic, one uh, gospel, one, um, um, uh, let's see, one, country, yeah. then... Uh, then a the, uh, love, the, love song album, Hopeless Romantic, and then Rhythm and Blues classics with the original performers, remakes of of Rhythm and Blues classics. And um, Who all did you work with on that R&B classic album? Well, a, the, the, a blue chip roster of the great artists. Uh, I did Tears of a Clown with Smokey Robinson, hmm. and Can't Help Myself with Levi Stubbs and the Four Tops, and Cool and the Gang, and... Uh, and um, uh, Casey and the Sunshine Band, Sister Sledge, we did redid We Are Family. I did um, A Woman Needs Love with Ray Parker Jr. We, I did Way of the World with Earth, Wind, and Fire. Wow. 
and the piece de resistance uh, went to Augusta, Georgia, recorded. Mm. Papa's got a brand new bag with James Brown. The Godfather himself. That's it. Hey, hey, Pat's got a brand new bag. <laughs> you know, Pat, I had the privilege of interviewing Mr. Brown a, a number of months before his his passing. Uh-huh. And it was a real it was a highlight for me because well, look, I made the mistake of seeing the show before. And so uh-huh. I w- I was mesmerized and I went up to his suite uh-huh. and waited for him. It was about 3 in the morning. We did the interview. <laughs> And, but I tell you, his his manager said, how did the interview go? I said, it was fantastic. You know, we had a great chat for about 30 minutes. She said, 30 minutes? He's never given a 30-minute interview in his life. <laughs> but we were in a zone where we were talking about spiritual stuff, and he uh, just he just warmed up to it. Well, you know, that that's something most folks don't think about uh, in, in connection with James Brown. But But like most black performers... Uh, he did have a church background and parents or a grandparent that uh, that took him to church and, and, and sort of instilled some faith, shared faith with him. Hmm. And so James, uh, when we met in his studio in Augusta to record his part of, of Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, he had his minister come over and led us in prayer before we began. Was that Mr. Sharpton or someone else? Oh, no, not, not, uh, not Al Sharpton. No, it was a, a local minister <laughs> okay, right. there in, uh, in Augusta. Right. Well, listen, you've really done it all, but I think one of the things that stands out for most people is when your people in the industry started to shape you into the white guy who'd cover the R&B songs that the black singers were doing... And when that went down, Pat, you know, I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, was there anything inside of you that felt like a little uneasy about it? Oh, sure. I, it was a, a, a real perversion of what really happened, and it was mainly, almost totally, created by people who did not live through that time. They didn't realize that when I came along, and it seemed like a coincidence, I don't think it was, but when I popped on the scene, made my first record of Two Hearts, Two Kisses, uh, that re- that song was a hit by the Charms in the rhythm and blues field. Rhythm and blues had their own charts, their own radio stations, their own buyers and sellers, and it was a separate genre of music. And there was I mean, R&B music was called race music, and uh, there was no playing of any of those songs or artists on the great big pop radio. So if they were going to make any money at all, they really needed someone like you. Well. I, I don't think they even anticipated it. It just happened. And uh, when it did happen, the smart ones realized, wow, if a, if a pop artist, not just a white one, but, I mean, Ella Fitzgerald and the Mills Brothers and Nat Cole and a lot of black artists uh, that were pop artists also began to listen to and pick up on some of these R&B hits and make uh, somewhat sanitized and uh, commercialized pop versions of those songs, and we were calling it rock and roll because the term uh, of the genre of music called rock and roll was just beginning, and it was growing out of rhythm and blues, but nobody knew where it was going to go. It just was sort of a discovery and a thing that was sort of growing organically, and I, my first few records, as we just said, were all rhythm and blues covers of songs that had already been hits. Mm but they were not known to or being played on pop radio. So what I've called myself once in a while a midwife at the birth of rock and roll because, <laughs> because I, 
I was uh, inadvertently, I mean, it was not an intentional thing, but we were just trying to have hit records. But uh, what I was doing, and Elvis did it too, was popularizing uh, and to some extent uh, sanitizing music for a big pop audience that up till then had no use for it at all. And uh, Jesse Jackson just said something recently when we were on the radio together on the station in Chicago. And, and this uh, this amazed me for him to say this, but he said, uh, we loved Pat Boone's father-in-law, Red Foley, hmm. uh, before we knew about Pat. But he said then when Pat came along, he was like a chip off the old block, and he was doing uh, uh, not country music at the beginning. He was doing our music. And he said, I think that Pat Boone did more for race relations through his music than any other artist because he was making the music seem good and, and palatable to a big white audience and he seemed to really respect the artist the original artist and and they were fine with him too and for a white kid from nashville from a you know strong christian background and all that this was a remarkable and unprecedented thing so this was from jesse jackson <laughs> and we appreciate that oh that's huge that is huge yeah. but you did i mean you just used the word sanitize and is, i mean is it true that you changed some of the lyrics or at least wanted to change uh, them to make them more acceptable oh, and re respectable like ain't that a shame you even did you not want it to kind of be isn't that a shame because back in the day ain't, it was like well, bad english it was bad english and and, and here i was uh, i just transferred to columbia university to major in english but still thinking i was going to be a teacher so when uh, the song Ain't That a Shame was put in front of me, I said, can I sing Isn't That a Shame? <laughs> and said, no, that just doesn't make it. No, that doesn't. Ain't That a Shame. Yeah. So what happened was ain't wound up in the dictionary as accepted usage as a almost like a, an old English contraction of isn't or aren't uh, that or isn't that a shame. So, yeah, I, but I changed words. I, and Little Richard's uh, Tutti Frutti. Uh, his lyric was, "Boy, you don't know what she, don't know what she do to me," and I just changed it to, "Pretty little Susie is the girl for me." <laughs> Things exactly the same. And you did something to Long Tall Sally too, didn't you? I did. I can't remember exactly what it was, but the, it was about Long Tall Sally was uh, apparently a questionable character. <laughs> <laughs> Going to go tell Mary about Uncle John. He saw him in, in the alley with Long Tall Sally yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a very questionable lyric, so I. I made some changes, but the kids didn't care. No. They didn't know what the original lyrics were, and, and all they knew was it was a fun, entertaining uh, thing. But then there were other lyrics I couldn't change, so I didn't do the songs. And uh, I turned down hits for other people, like, uh, uh, well, it was the original song was Roll With Me, Henry, all night long, and eventually Georgia Gibbs did it and, and called it Dance With Me, Henry, and it was a very big hit, but... I couldn't even sing Dance With Me, Henry. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it must have driven you nuts. I can imagine you almost losing your mind. And speaking of that, yeah. here's a little something I found. I'm not sure whether this will ring any bells or not, but have a listen. Love those horns.
I really don't think it gets any smoother than this. I was trying to figure out whether you or Perry Como had the had the slickest of slick going on. <laughs> well, I tell you, it was a gift. Just and Shirley keeps reminding me when I don't always sound like I did then. She said, "Pat, it was a gift," and it was. I I didn't know that those octave uh, jumps were hard until <laughs> later in life. And uh, and I just did it because that's what Ivory Joe Hunter had written and and recorded when he did that song. And it was a it had been a big rhythm and blues hit before I ever did it, and and virtually was off the scene. But uh, I did it, and it became another number one smash. And then I did a song called Chains of Love, where I did the same kind of octave jumps, and uh, and it was it became sort of a oh I don't know a mini trademark, which no other singer did. Uh, but I didn't know it was hard. I just did it. <laughs> well, the last time you did this, I wonder if you can remember, can you still nail that Perry Como impersonation that you, you used to do? You nailed him perfectly. Well, uh, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Dream along with me. I'm on my way to a star. Uh, he, he also made difficult intervals of music seems so easy, and uh, and I asked him about that. I said, Perry, what do you think of when you have uh, a big interval like that, something to sing? Do you think of pitch? Do you think of breath? What do you think of? He says, the words. <laughs> the words. I think of the words. <laughs> and really, he had more trouble remembering the words than singing the melody. But, you know, you imitated him physically as well. He was always kind of almost spastic with his hand movements and putting his his hands behind his head or touching his ear. And He was just, he was a very fascinating individual to watch sometimes because other times he was just deadpan. It was like he wasn't alive. His arms weren't, yeah. it was like they well, were taped to his side. The big, uh, the best imitation of him which was repeated on Saturday Night Live a number of times, and I'm trying to, th or, or maybe it was uh, SCTV, Canadian TV. Uh, I think it was Dave Thomas. Dave Thomas, yeah, you're right. He did a great <laughs> imitation. He just lay on the floor and pulled the mic down, just lay prone on the floor and sang something as if he was in his sleep. And, uh, I mean, that was, <laughs> that was a little exaggeration, but yeah. really, Perry actually did sleep before his uh, NBC one-hour Saturday night top-rated live television show. He would take a nap in his dressing room till about 10 minutes before the before he went on the air. You're kidding. And then they'd, they'd uh, arouse him. He'd get up, put on his suit and tie, and tie the his tie very, you know, kind of loosely, and then just sort of almost sleepwalk up to the <laughs> studio and stand in front of the mic, and the red light would come on. And Why does that remind me of Leonard Cohen for some reason? <laughs> I, I don't know, because really, even Bing Crosby seemed frantic compared to a Perry. Really? You know, now there's a gentleman, people always said, you know, who would you like to interview, Drew, or who has gone that you, you would have liked to have interviewed? I would love to interview uh, James Taylor, uh, Sting, uh, Bono, and actually Charles Manson, believe it or not. Yeah, sure, what an interview that would oh, be. Oh, it'd be tremendous. It really would. It'd be quite fascinating. But I've, I, I missed out on Bing Crosby. Yeah, and, uh, you know, interesting, I think the last interview that Bing did was with Barbara Walters. Hmm. And that was uh, that contained a real shocker. She couldn't believe it. He was saying what he said because Bing 
you know, was always thought of as a real family guy. In fact, he had two families with two wives. I mean, his first wife, Dixie, died, and then he had four boys. And then uh, with Catherine, he had uh, two more boys and a girl. And, of course, that girl, Mary Catherine, was uh, very, very precious to him. And so she was asking Bing about her, and she was now, like, in her late, late teens, about 20. And uh, he was very casual talking to Barbara, and she said, Now, Bing, these times have changed, and um, uh, what will you say or do, or will it matter if your daughter Mary Catherine says she uh, uh, loves this particular guy and wants to move in with him without getting married? And Bing said, She's out of the will. It's say la vie, sayonara. And, and Barbara said, you've got to be kidding. He said, oh, no. <laughs> he said, well, I've raised my kids uh, better than that. And he said, no, sir. If, uh, if she were to do something, he said, she's not going to. But if she were going to move in with a guy, then she's literally out of the will. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, now this was a shock. Oh. It was almost like when Sean Connery admitted that he thought uh, it was that a woman needed slapping once at all. And Barbara couldn't, she couldn't quite take that either. No, very rarely do you see Barbara Walters gobsmacked, you know, just stunned. Uh, listen, well, according to Billboard, Pat Boone was the second biggest charting artist of the late 1950s, behind only Elvis, but ahead of Ricky Nelson and the Platters, and was ranked at number nine behind Rolling Stones, Paul McCartney, but ahead of artists such as Aretha Franklin, Chicago, and the Beach Boys. And you still hold the Billboard record for spending 220 consecutive weeks on the charts with more than one song? Yeah, because, uh, and I don't think that'll ever be touched, but, it, you know, because things change. I mean, artists come and go, and styles and trends, but in this case, uh, the reason that happened was because Randy Wood at Dot Records, this very aggressive independent company that I was fortunate enough to record for, his M.O. was as soon as one of my records uh, peaked, that is, if it was number two and it dropped to number four, out came the next record. And so we always kept the momentum up, and soon as uh, one record began to come down the chart, the other was released and went up, and they passed each other, and and that's why for over four years, I had um, I had two records on the charts virtually every week, and I had at least one, but almost always one going down, one going up, and um, and and that was just his mo. Nobody else did that, and that's why again, uh, more than any artist except Bing and Frank, I have recorded more songs over the years. Some. Oh, I think we last count about 1,200 songs and and over 100 albums. And um, and other artists just don't do that much recording, but it seemed like I was constantly in a recording studio and loved it and was recording things that, uh, in many cases, I only did the one time and never heard or thought of again. <laughs> Unbelievable. Folks, we're on the phone with Pat Boone. And, and Pat, is it true that you refuse to work with Marilyn Monroe or, or you refuse to kiss Shirley Jones? Well, I I uh, did balk at kissing Shirley Jones, uh, and I did turn down and, and risk suspension at 20th. The Shirley Jones thing was there was no kiss in the script in April Love, and it was just the first, my second movie. And I went right from Bernadine right into production on April Love, and I was 21. And um, and I was worried about my wife's reaction to me doing uh, kissing scenes. I mean, I know it sounds very naive, and it was, but 
I was uh, more concerned about keeping my marriage together than, than having a movie career, which I hadn't ever contemplated anyway. <laughs> and so uh, I balked at kissing Shirley Jones, got my wife's permission, came back the next day, but it had already hit the papers, the trade papers, and was around the world that I had refused to kiss my leading lady. They assumed for religious reasons, and that was not the case. But uh, So I did not kiss her in that film. I she still owes me a kiss. <laughs> but now the other, uh, Marilyn Monroe, I was under contract and uh, at 20, so was Marilyn. And, uh, of course, she was older, but there was a, a, a script they had that would have her portray a still beautiful but slightly over-the-hill entertainer who comes back to a small town to, to get her bearings. And uh, a young kid that lives there, I would play him you know, was totally infatuated with her. She was flattered, and they have a dalliance and affair. And then she goes away and leaves him sort of heartbroken, but he'll get over it. They call those movies now rites of passage Oh yes, uh, movies. But uh, to me, it was just an immoral thing, and it was a very bad example, I thought, for my teenage fans. And I told Buddy Adler, the head of the studio, I could not do that film. And he said, well, you know, we could suspend you. And you would not, and the musicians' union and the TV, and, and you'll you'll really be out of business. I said, sir, I understand. I I know you have to make your decisions, but you, I have to make mine, and I just can't do this because it would be send a very very bad immoral message to you know kids that I think I have some influence on. So I'm sorry, but I can't do it. So you do whatever you think is right, and. So then they put me into something else, which turned out to be a big hit. And that film, which they went ahead and did with uh, 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 Joanne Woodward and a guy named Richard Beamer, uh, was a total flop at the box office. So uh, maybe it was a good thing. Yeah, well, listen, uh, uh, no to Marilyn Monroe, no to Shirley Jones. <laughs> I, I'm wondering I'm wondering if you ever said no to this lady. See if you can recognize the, the voice in this one. Okay. This goes a while back as well, 1959. <laughs> We all know your your Grammy Award winning daughter Debbie Boone and her smash hit "You Light Up My Life." But your other daughters, uh, what have they moved on to in life? Because I mean, didn't you all used to sing together? Yes, for seven years it was the Pat Boone family show, and and uh, that happened because you know I had to travel so much. My career, uh, you know, I, they don't pay you to sing around the house, so I was out on the road a lot and. Uh, my daughters were all becoming teenagers. They were only three and a half years apart from the oldest to the youngest. So uh, I noticed the Osmonds. In fact, I took the whole Osmond family with me to Japan on an Asian tour before they had their big record success. And 
And I took my own daughters and wife, and, and the Japanese promoter suggested that we uh, team up and, and do some singing, the two families. We did. And I realized at that point that this would be a great way to keep my four soon teenage daughters in sight at all times. And uh, because I was a protective dad, I don't mind admitting that, uh, and they will tell you, <laughs> they chafed at it sometimes, but but Shirley and I were very involved, uh, caring, and watchful parents. So uh, for seven years, we, we traveled, and we there was a great demand for us. You mentioned the Partridge family, the Brady Bunch, those those. Uh, groups were put together by central casting our family was put together by god and, <laughs> and us and so we uh, it was a fantastic thing we traveled together we sang together we prayed together we had fun together the girls brought their uh, assignments from school with them and when they returned without exception when they get back to school after two or three weeks of travel and singing uh, they would be ahead of their class because the teacher would give them assignments she meant to keep up with but you know and so they'd come back having done those assignments and were ahead of the rest of the class so it didn't uh, uh, didn't make them worse students I think in some ways it made them better and so we had record we recorded together we uh, wound up doing TV specials together and guest appearances with Bob Hope and Dean Martin and Flip Wilson and and a lot of folks mm. and, uh, and and so it was a great experience but eventually uh, guys did infiltrate my defenses, and and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and and you know the wedding bells broke up the gang, and and so I went back to being uh, just Pat Boone. But then Debbie, uh, which surprised us because she was the most nervous when she sang, and we thought would least want to have a solo career, but uh, but when the time came, she recorded "You Light Up My Life," and then his handle her career extremely well. The other three, you know, we've got 15 grandkids amongst our four daughters, so each one has at least three children, and Cherry, the eldest, has five, and uh, and Lindy, three, and Laurie, three, Debbie, four. So What a legacy. They all, you know, they've kept their mamas busy, but they get together, the four girls, four women now, get together a couple times a year on special occasions, and... Uh, and still perform, and they haven't lost. In fact, I think they've actually gained in their melodic and their musical ability to, to create a harmony that uh, only uh, people that are related to each other, they have that sibling sound, like the Lennons and the Maguires and sure, sure. some of the others. The, the last time you and I talked, it was uh, 2004, and you told, you told me a couple of funny, funny stories. The first one that always stands out, I think, in most people's minds in this culture today is you, of all people, having as a neighbor Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> and, you know, he tells the story about the fact that of all the neighbors he's had, you're the only one that never called the cops on him. That's right. Actually, I said that part because after he moved in for three years, I would go over to visit with him, and I think Sharon must have said, now, kids, uh, Ozzy, let's watch our language now because, you know, Pat's... You know, here here comes the God guy. Yeah, and so nobody but Ozzy really dropped the F-bomb, uh, but he that was just part of his speech, and he didn't even think about it. And uh, so uh, when they moved away, 
after three years and then began their TV show, I never had asked him what he thought about my recording of his song Crazy Train <laughs> in my uh, Pat Boone in a Metal Mood CD with the big band jazz <laughs> arrangement. And his song was one of the ones I did. And he didn't bring it up, so I thought, well, he must not like it. But then when his TV show uh, just became the sensation of the airwaves, for a long time, I tuned in to see what it was about, and I was amazed to see, hear that my version of his song was his theme song for the show, <laughs> Crazy, Hey, That's How It Goes. <laughs> and so then later, several times on his on their show, she, Sharon, I remember one scene was just washing some dishes in the sink. She said, oh, don't you miss that nice Pat Boone? <laughs> oh, yeah, he was the best bleep bleep neighbor we ever had. <laughs> And you had to bleep him out, but that's just, uh, that was Ozzy. I, oh, boy. I really liked him, and I still do. I hurt for them because they've been going through some trials, you know, sure. physical and others. But uh, to, amazingly, young Jack has gotten off drugs. He's straightened up. Oh, good. It's just uh, astonishing. And, uh, they, you know, we shared with them as much as we could, spiritual things, and they had crucifixes all over the house. <laughs> Uh, mixed in with satanic images, <laughs> but uh, and he still calls himself the Prince of Darkness, and I cringe. Yeah, but but they're you know they're they're going along the best they know. Sure, and uh, and really, I, I'm, I'm I we did get along, and rock jocks would ask me about it. That Ozzy said you're the best neighbor. I said yeah, because. Uh, I think we're the only neighbors they ever had that never called the police. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I had another good friend of yours on the show recently. Well, not recently. Uh, I think it was last year. Coop was on. And, he, of course, you and him have uh, got a great friendship. Yep. Uh, as a matter of fact, didn't you and Coop, we're talking about Alice Cooper here, didn't yeah. you and Coop come out on stage one time at an awards ceremony exactly. or something? And you yeah. guys you guys switched roles? Like, you came out in leathers and he came out all slicked up? Well, he was supposed to. That was oh, that's right. He, idea. Yeah, he, did, he didn't and do he, it. At the last minute, I mean, an hour after the show was already on. Uh, but, we, you know, it's a three-hour uh, extravaganza, and we, Dick Clark, had asked us to swap images Dick was producing this show and American Music Awards, and 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 Coop was supposed to come out with his hair pulled back under a golf cap, wearing a V-neck sweater, <laughs> uh, wearing white buck shoes, and, and maybe carrying a glass of milk. And I would come out in uh, leathers and tattoos and chokers and shades and boots and earrings, and and I would be you know a shock rocker heavy metal guy because my album of heavy metal classics with the big band jazz arrangements was going to be released the very next day. So this seemed like a good thing, and we were going to present the award for hard rock heavy metal. Well, uh, Coop, at the last minute, literally about an hour before we were to go on, he said, I'm not going to do that. He said, I'm, not, I, I'm just not comfortable. I'm just going to go out like I normally would, you know. And he, So he did. He went out with his long hair hanging down and the black makeup under his eyes and and, and black uh, slim pants, you know, and yeah. introduced me thinking I was going to come a around the corner in a tux uh, as the future of heavy metal. <laughs> Instead, I walked around the corner, and he saw me for the first time in the, in that heavy metal regalia. I had adopted sort of a an attitude, <laughs> and I walked up to him, and he literally, I was, I was enjoying shocking the king of shock rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that I now knew was my Christian brother, but, you know, most people didn't. Yeah. 
and the crowd in the Shrine Auditorium was going insane. And, and I know that a lot of the cacophony was with the younger ones saying, who is that? And yeah. the older ones trying to say, well, they said it was Pat Boone, but it can't be. That can't be, <laughs> that can't be Pat Boone up too, there. Too bad you couldn't use that line with TBN. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, I, I didn't realize I was, because I had written uh, most of the you know prominent Christian leaders, including the folks at TBN, that I had done this album. Don't worry, I've, I've done what I did in the beginning. I've gone over every lyric. I, if anything was might be questionable, I've changed words. It may sound similar, but there's nothing wrong with them, and don't you know? Don't panic. But they did because <laughs> uh, this appearance on the American Music Awards made it seem to, I guess, several million Christians that I had completely sold out, flipped out, come on, out. Come on. Really, I, th- th- that was. Uh, That's they, almost as bad as Chuck Swindoll riding into the Promise Keepers convention on his Harley, you know. Exactly, same thing, <laughs> only worse, because I had tattoos, and I, I still have those tattoos. People ask me about them. I said, yeah, I do. They're in a drawer at home, but yes, I do. <laughs> I do have them. <laughs> oh, you are a character. Well, listen, we, we've got to get to this book that you've uh, you've come yeah. out. I mean, how many books? Seriously, you've, would, you, would you please just stop working so hard? <laughs> James Brown has passed, and he used to be the hardest working man in show business. I yeah. think it's you now. Questions about God and the answers that could change your life. You and uh, Cord Cooper, mm-hmm. you, you pretty much address evidence that God not only exists, but is knowable. Well, yes, knowable, and, and the big thing is, and the reason Cord Cooper, who is a renowned writer, researcher, writes for Investor Business Daily and has written for a lot of major publications, and, uh, and he sent me a manuscript with a lot of this material in this, that is now this book, Questions About God, um, and, and I told my assistant at the time, if, if this were in printed or published form, I would order 100 copies right now to send to almost everybody I know, especially folks with kids, high school, college-age kids, because the, there are two books, three books out now that are selling in the hundreds of thousands by Chris Hitchens, Sam Harris, evolutionist guy named Dawkins, and they're, they're all denying and, and supposedly proving that there is no God, that that's all idiocy, and Bill, Mars, Bill Maher talks about people and their silly gods and they're all angry, and they're militant, and they suppose, they think that they're proving somehow logically that uh, the idea of God is just uh, is just really an old mythology. And so we thought that we needed to come out with a simple, substantive, irrefutable kind of a book that answers three questions. One, does God exist? Can you prove it? Is Can we know scientifically that there is a God? that we must answer to and deal with. Secondly, uh, is the Bible divinely inspired? How do we know? Uh, How can that be proven? And thirdly, is Jesus the Son of God? And so those three fundamental, most important questions we do answer. I think anybody who reads this short, fairly short, and uh, soft cover, therefore inexpensive book, uh, will have the material they need and the answers they need for those who are still looking for truth and haven't got totally closed minds, uh, I would defy any scientist to put his or her ideas up against Stephen Hawking, who is considered the most brilliant scientist alive and one of uh, maybe the most who ever lived, but also 
a man named Albert Einstein, and both Hawking and Einstein say, in effect, in fact, on this one page, I quote Einstein, my comprehension of God comes from the deeply felt conviction of a superior intelligence that reveals itself in the knowable world. And he says, in view of such harmony in the cosmos, which I, with my limited human mind, this is Albert Einstein talking, am able to recognize there are yet people who say there is no God. But what makes me really angry is that they quote me for support of such views. And and he and Stephen Hawking both say, and these are the two most brilliant minds of our time, and they, it agrees with growing, growing huge numbers of scientists, uh, even Newsweek talked about it uh, and, and had a whole issue about uh, the rediscovery of God by science. Uh, that was 10 years ago. Uh, but they all say the idea that everything we know operating in such perfect precision happened by accident with no design is so unscientific as to be idiotic. Uh, and so, And then we go on from proving with science, that God does exist, he has to, there's no other explanation, that then the Bible is so full of scientific evidence as well as literary and other kinds of internal evidence, as well as external, that the Bible is is a divine book. There's never been a book like it. It couldn't exist without the same uh, basis as the universe itself. And therefore, if it proclaims that Jesus is the Son of God, as he did himself, uh, then we better be paying attention to it. So I want this book to be on every college campus, and we're trying to make it available to uh, families with kids that are being indoctrinated by their teachers with uh, uh, evolutionist uh, heresy and unscientific thought uh, because it's being crammed into their brains and they're coming out of school, you know, believing it, that... uh, uh, I want to get this book to people who can then share it because we need to combat lies. Uh, and somebody once said, "The more you, can t- if you tell a lie enough times, people will believe it," and that's what's happening. PhDs who have believed in their hearts there is no God, which is the biblical definition of fool. The fool says in his heart there's no God. It's funny; it doesn't say fool says in his brain or his mind <laughs> in his heart. It's what he wants to believe. So he constructs some kind of rationale to support what he wants to believe, what these PhDs are doing, ignoring the fact that that science refutes them. You know, you have always had a spiritual tenacity about you, always. I mean always. Yeah. It's almost like you took on the persona of Alec McEwen. You know, right, aye, aye, professor. <laughs> right from the get-go, it's been an inspiring thing for many people over the years to look at you. I mean, you're a Hollywood icon, but you're also, you know, you're you're iconic of uh, of what Christ followers. I guess we should we should be able to get to the point where we're as passionate and and as resolute about things as you. See, I struggle, Pat, with my faith. I really do. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, people, I think thinking people do. That's why I. I felt like this book was and is important because thinking people do ask. We do inquire. Mm. Well, Daniel Taylor wrote a book called The Myth of Certainty, Uh and he says that certainty, sorry, doubt is more compatible with faith than certainty. But there are absolutes, and that's what we've got to get to are the rock-solid absolutes 
and they are provable. And the, and the Bible says simply, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament that is created things show his handiwork. Therefore, O oh man, you are without excuse. You can never say when we stand before God, I, you know, I just wasn't sure about you. I wasn't sure you existed. And, and, it's, and when you're looking at the one who created everything and, and in which we live and move and have our being, uh, that, that lame idea is not going to carry much weight. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> and so it's all around us. But what we do think, and we have to parry or compete with these other made-up philosophies that, that people kind of want to believe, and so that's why these other atheistic books are successful. People are looking for some out. Maybe we don't have to answer to God. Uh, maybe there is no God, so maybe we're on our own. Well, the bleak side of that is, if we are really on our own, well, I started to say God help us, but <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, right. <laughs> he's out of the picture. Yeah. There is no God to help us. But I, I want to say, if people want to get the book, and I hope they do, that, of course, they, I guess, booksellers, will have it, but the best way is just to go to AnswersThatCouldChangeYourLife.com, AnswersThatCouldChangeYourLife.com, and, and you can get it, and I hope folks will want to get a copy of this into the hands of, of the young. Uh, hopefully, as we're older, we've some, settled some of these questions, but as you're saying, even as we uh, get into, I'm sure you're in your middle years, <laughs> I'm in my... <laughs> latter quadrant <laughs> but um, but still uh, we do ask and it's good to have solid scientific factual uh, uh, confirmation of what we do believe well again the book is called questions about god and the answers that could change your life that's the website answers that could change your life dot com yeah and uh, you know what the time is just gone we've almost been chatting for an hour do you realize yeah, that I do realize it's that you can't shut me up. Oh, my goodness. Listen, I, I have to say thank you for the Thank You Billy Graham video. I have oh, to say good. thank you for that. I, the first time I watched that, choked me up. Yeah. And well done. I mean, uh, I, I can think of no more perfect person to do a Thank You Billy Graham video than you. <laughs> well, I'm just grateful that I was able to I, and, and that, uh, that people are learning about it, the song and the video, while Billy's still with us. So it doesn't seem like some posthumous uh, yeah. thing, and uh, and of course proceeds are going to Samaritan's Purse and to Mercy Corps to feed the hungry and, and help the most needy in the world as an extension of his ministry. Well, you've done a lot of things that have touched a lot of people. Uh, just before we say goodbye, there's two things I've got to bring up. One is, uh, I believe it was Gavin McLeod that first put me on to you a lot of years ago. You and him are pretty good mates, are you not? Very, very good friends, yeah. yes. I can't believe how many times God bugs me about Gavin and his wife. You know, I just, in the middle of the night, I'll, I'll uh, be thinking about, you know, her health issues. and. Yeah. Anyway, so... I, yeah, I, they're doing okay, I can tell you. We were together, and we talk frequently. And good. Yes, they've had the, these health issues, but, but Gavin has a new film, and, 
and uh, and and they are very happily together. And uh, well, for those of you who don't know who we're talking about, we're talking about Captain Steubing or yeah, uh, Murray. Murray from uh, Mary, Mary Tyler, Tyler Moore. Moore yeah. And uh, of course, I, I chatted with Gavin last week, uh, uh-huh. just before I, I interviewed Marie Osmond because I knew they had worked together, and so he had some fun things to say about Marie. But yeah. when you talked about taking your family to Japan with the Osmonds, when I was chatting with Marie last week, she had brought up that tour, and one time they were out playing hide and go seek and she got lost in the bush and it was the, one of the very first times in her life that she just stopped and she remembers absolutely 100% trusting God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So interesting yeah. that you would bring the Osmonds up today and yeah, Marie of course. I, so those, those experiences in our lives I think most everybody well I hope most everybody has a moment like that. Un- unfortunately we tend to dismiss them later as well. It was a coincidence I you know it's a childish thing. Yeah, it was childish. And Jesus said, except you become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. We think we're so smart, but, uh, <laughs> you know, we uh, we got a lot to learn. We do. We do. And I could learn a lot from you. Pat Boone, it's our second time together, and I so much appreciate your heart, who you are, and how you do the Jesus stuff. Really. <laughs> I like that. Well, he's my best friend, but uh, thank you. You're one of them. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, Pat. And I look forward to chatting again in the future. Thank you, Drew. All right. Take care, mate. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Pat Boone on the Drew Marshall Show. Classic stuff. Have a listen to this talent from, I think this was (laughs) 1950-ish. When we come back from our break... We're going to chat with Trish Ryan. And then after Trish, Kevin Newman, anchor of Global National. Stay with us. Lots more on the Drew Marshall Show coming up. When she said what she said. Like what you've heard? Listen again online at drewmarshall.ca. I can tell you people.